You know, we knew it was going to be an impossible mission. And it was going to be impossible because you have time constraints, you have space constraints with a book, and there's just an extraordinary number of extraordinary people um, that came from here. Probably a disproportionate number when you really dive deep mm. into the history of this university of world-changing people. Scott Petoniak, a journalist in 1977 Syracuse University grad, and Falk College professor Rick Burton, a 1980 Syracuse grad, took on that impossible mission, gathering and sharing the stories of those people, places, and moments in time that captured the story of Syracuse University's first 150 years in their book, Forever Orange, the story of Syracuse University. Scott and Rick are our guests for this Cuse conversation. I'm glad you found our podcast. I'm Chris Velarde, Director of Digital Engagement and Communications in the Office of Alumni Engagement and a 1995 Syracuse grad. I sat down with Scott and Rick to talk about some of the common themes that connect the Syracuse University of today to the institution that was founded on March 24th, 1870, and what our history can tell us about where the university is headed. Scott Petoniak, Rick Burton, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Let, let's start just for background with your own Syracuse stories, because I think, uh, you know, we, we all have them. And, and Scott, I'll start with you. What's, what's your, what stands out about your Syracuse story? Well, you know, I think Syracuse University was a, a place where I really blossomed, not only as a student, but I think as a person, I was somewhat introverted a, a little bit, you know, maybe in high school and stuff. And, and I came here and it like, it opened up all sorts of new worlds for me. Um, again, not only academically, but I think socially. And when I think back to my time at Syracuse, I mean, um, it was, it was a wondrous time. Some of the best, you know, years of my life really were spent on this campus. Uh, I made uh, friendships that continued to be, uh, you know, lifelong friendships I made here and, and people whom, you know, my closest and best friends I made here at Syracuse University and I, and I continue to have those relationships. Um, I think many of the lessons that I learned um, uh, from professors I had in Newhouse, I'll never forget like uh, John Mitchell, who uh, uh, was a crusty old newspaper guy <laughs> who like ingrained in me like, you know, get it, get it right. You know, that's more important than getting it first. Uh, and every little mistake or whatever was something that destroyed your trust that, you know, that people had in you as a journalist and stuff. So there, there's things I, I, I use to this day uh, when, when I think back to it or, or you know, or David Bennett um, teaching American history. And he was really like a thespian <laughs> more than a professor. I mean, we gave him standing ovation at the end of each semester that we had him because he was so theatrical and stuff. So there's just so many ways that this impacted me. And obviously in my journalism career, I've spent so much time covering Syracuse athletics um, and seen some of the great moments uh, through the years from the, the upset of number one Nebraska in football to you know Pearl Washington's half court shot to the national championship in basketball. I mean, you name it, I've seen so many great things. So. It, you know, continues to impact me to this day. And it's a place that every time I come back to, I really do have a sense that I'm coming back to one of my homes. Yeah. You know, it, it's got touch on it, Rick. I, I think the idea that your Syracuse story is a four-year window of time is uh, a complete myth. It, it certainly isn't. Yeah, I think that's right. And Scott hit, I think, all the major points. I came here more as an extrovert. Uh, but came here with the belief that, that Syracuse could launch me towards something that I didn't fully understand, uh, but that it would create that opportunity. And as you say, it's been a lifelong relationship and, and one that 
the friendships you made here were ones that stayed with you for the rest of your life. Um, the ideals that I think we developed as journalists or, or even just as citizens of a larger community, I think got framed very much because it's the first years of your independence. Right. And I think you start to find out not only about your independence, but your interdependence on others. And, and I, I loved it. You know, it's funny when I think back to how I ended up here, there was a girl I liked, you know, in high school. She said she was going to come to Syracuse. She didn't, but I did. And uh, and the rest is history. Yeah. You still got the better of the deal, I think. I, I right? sure did. That's yeah. right. And, and, and you're here now. And, and you're here now as a professor. And what does that mean? What does that look like to you as somebody who was a student here and now teaches the next generation? Well, I think for both Scott and I, you know, for me as a professor and Scott as an alum, this was an opportunity for us to give back mm. to a university that we just feel so strongly about. And, and it gave us, I think, such a foundation for going forward. So as a professor, um, I love being able to bring the history of the university into the classroom. And so as we deal with different topics, if we decide, in my case, teaching, that I want to talk about the Syracuse 8, or I want to talk about something that's happened on campus previously, we've seen a lot of the issues that you know are now current events um, took place 100 years ago or yeah. 125 years ago. Yeah, there are things that happen that either history repeats itself or you learn from things and, and, and you, you approach things differently because of what had happened in the past. As a journalist, I mean, obviously, kind of going back and, and looking at the history with such a fine tooth comb to put this book together must have been quite a challenge, but quite an interesting challenge. Yeah, uh, you know, and Rick and I, um, when, when, when I convinced him foolishly to uh, join me on this journey here uh, about five years ago, uh, he crazily agreed, agreed to, uh, to join me here. Um, you know, we knew it was going to be an impossible mission. And it was gonna be impossible because you have time constraints, you have space constraints with a book, and there's just an extraordinary number of extraordinary people um, that came from here. Probably a disproportionate number when you really dive deep mm. into the history of this university of world-changing people, um, uh, you know. And uh, so it, it was it was a tough task, but it was also an incredible labor of love, as Rick says, giving back to the university and hopefully, you know, for posterity's sake, that you know people. Uh, we'll be able to look at this book and build upon it um, and, and also feel a sense of pride that you're you're a part of something um, something pretty spectacular and something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so great when you are telling a story like this or asking alumni to share their own experiences or the things that mattered most is you have so many different unique stories. I mean, I, we like to say that we have 240,000 plus living alumni with 240,000 plus stories. But what I'm curious about in putting this together if you is if you noticed common themes that tie everything together. So yes, 240,000 plus unique stories, but certain highlights that, that tend to be the common thread. I think two things um, struck me. Um, one, right from the start, the foundation, you know, the founding of this university was inclusion and diversity. Mm. Um, it was part of the mission statement, even though they didn't call it a mission statement back then, and even though they didn't use the 21st century buzzwords, inclusion and diversity, that was the goal right from the, from the get-go. Uh, it was a co-educational university. It was going to be, you know, the first in New York State. Um, 
it was going to be open to you regardless of, of gender, race, ethnicity, um, religion. Even though it was founded by the Methodists, they really wanted it um, to be open to everyone based on your ability, on your brains. Mm. Um, that, that's one theme that throughout like, um, w- was recurring. And I think the other thing that struck me was this has always been a place and continues to be a place that will take a chance on people that other places would not. And a perfect example of this, I look at one of the most incredible alumni um, that I came across was F. Story Musgrave, Franklin Story Musgrave, who is known you know, f- for his, his uh, exploits as an astronaut. He, he um, holds the record for, for most space shuttle missions and so forth, and is best known for uh, fixing the Hubble telescope in space. But um, here's a guy who, grew up in a very dysfunctional family, alcoholic parents, abusive parents and stuff, and drops out of high school, goes into the armed forces. And while he's in the armed forces, he's always thinking about, well, I'm gonna go back at some point and continue my education. And for some reason, uh, you know, one of his comrades said like, you ought to look at Syracuse. Not that the person had any connection with Mm -hmm. Syracuse, but I think he knew about the GI Bill and the opportunities that this university gave to uh, you know returning soldiers after World War I. So he comes here in, you know, in the mid-50s and stuff, uh, F. F Story Musgrave, and he has to go in front of an admissions council because he had, he had dropped out of high school. He didn't have a high school degree. And so he's, he's here in front of this panel of maybe five people, and four of them said, we're not taking a chance on this guy. <laughs> But there was one person on that committee who saw something in F Story Musgrave that, you know, I think we should, you know, we should really take a chance on this guy. And so they grudgingly agreed and admitted him. Well, he graduates like with a, a degree in advanced mathematics in two and a half years, you know, take, taking 19 credit hours a semester, um, coming here in the summer. Uh, he's on the wrestling team and so forth. He goes on again. He's not a high school graduate, right? He goes on and he gets five graduate degrees, including a medical doctor's degree. Becomes a surgeon. NASA gives him time off to be a surgeon three months. Uh, And uh, um, he's just an extraordinary person. And I think it's an example of like so many other schools would have said, no, like wouldn't even get to a point where you're going in front of an admissions committee or whatever, or they're even going to review. They're just going to throw that. Oh, that goes in the circular file, the wastebasket. Right. We're not taking a chance. And I've seen a number of other people, too, uh, through the years that this university took a chance on. And, um, you know, it worked out. At the end of the well. day, it paid off. Yeah. Rick, I saw you nodding your head with, with these common themes that, that Scott talks about. Yeah, the, he mentioned one piece that I, that I love, that there are probably 200 universities scattered across upstate New York, St. Lawrence, St. Bonaventure, Oneonta, Hamilton, Colgate, Cortland, that Syracuse became this kind of mega university is really pretty fascinating. And there have been, I think, a number of people who played huge roles in that, uh, John Archbold, Mm -hmm. uh, and the money that he gave that really kept this university afloat when it could have cratered. Um, The stadium that he built that ultimately made us a power in sports that changed really you know, they always talk about sports being the front porch of a university. We ended up having a massive front porch. So the fact that we won a national championship in football and then in basketball and we won it in lacrosse has created this worldwide visibility for Syracuse that otherwise 
we might not have had. We could have ended up as being just a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And instead, I think we really put the city of Syracuse and Onondaga County, in some ways, the state of New York on the map because we're the only major division one program in playing big time football, right. big time basketball in the state of New York. And now with the power five, the, the, the ACC that we're a member of, um, there's really only Boston College in Massachusetts and Rutgers in New Jersey and Syracuse. We're the only three schools that are in this entire region that play at the biggest level. Yeah. This heavily populated region, it, it's, it really is, when you break it down like that, interesting to think about. Um, you talked a little about the idea that in many ways, the university put the city on the map, put the county on the map. Um, obviously, when you're talking about a university and a city, that the town-gown relationship is an important part of the conversation. In terms of putting all of this together and, and kind of digging into the history a little bit, what, what have been some of the highlights of that relationship? Because obviously, anytime you have a university like this and a city which has the struggles that cities have, there can be difficulties, but there can also be instances where, you know, one lifts the other up a little bit. Yeah, the story I go to right away, and Scott will probably know this, is Stephen Crane comes here as a, as really a, a pretty weak student. Um, he lives in a fraternity at the top of Marshall Street, and uh, he will go into the city of Syracuse quite a bit to study the people. He'll go down to the train station and watch trains arrive. His first book is called Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, and, and it's not one that most people are familiar with, but his next book, The Red Badge of Courage, really becomes a seminal piece of uh, American literature, um, and it is a tale of the Civil War, and it, there's so much of a relationship, I think, between how a lot of students and faculty have gone into the community and taken things and come back up on this hill, and, and we played with titles for the name of the book, where we're going to... There have been things that have been called the hill and orange on the hill. Mm -hmm. But really, this, this concept of Syracuse University as a beacon, sitting on top of this hill that overlooks this city and this lake, and, and it's there really during a lot of the pivotal moments in central New York history. The Erie Canal already exists. The railroad is going to come through. Um, but Syracuse circa 1870 is just starting to find itself. And, and I think the university plays a huge part in that. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting, too, is like, I mean, um, you know, the, 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 the city fathers at the time when when there was that convention, the Methodist convention in, in 1870 to, uh, uh, you know, to put the university here, they said, essentially the, the one thing that we're lacking, we've got a booming economy. And as Rick mentioned, like they're the center of the state, it's a transportation hub because of the Erie Canal and then the, and the railroads and stuff. The one thing we're missing is that great university, um, that, you know, that great educational component. And, and so this completes Syracuse in a way, just, you know, and, and the symbiotic relationship is, you know, without doubt, I mean, they both benefited from it. I think you see the outreach of the university um, it's not just this beacon on the hill, but they come down from the hill right. to try to help, you know, this city as well. And the interesting thing is, you know, like this could have been Rome, this could have been Utica, this could have been Rochester where they located, uh, but they, they wanted to go to, you know, someplace on the beaten path. This was the center of the state. And again, with the transportation hubs and, and everything. So, um, and I think, you know, I think too, Rick had mentioned before about sports and, you know, Sports has also helped put 
the city of Syracuse on, okay. on, on the on the map. And um, you know, the Carrier Dome is one of the most iconic sports arenas in the nation. Mm -hmm. All the television exposure um, it's gotten, you know, through the years and so forth. And it, that speaks to Syracuse University. You know, so I. Um, it, I well, it, let's let's throw in Archbold Stadium, right. which gets built in 1904-05. That era. Pro football doesn't exist yet. The NFL doesn't exist. We build the equivalent of the Harvard Stadium, the Harvard Concrete Bowl. Yeah. We make it look like you know the ancient Colosseum, although it's a different architectural design. We have one of the finest stadiums in the world by 1908. Um, and very few other places would have that kind of facility for another 20 years. Right, yeah. You know, and one of the things when you think about the athletics and you think about kind of the relationship is that idea that, and, and look, I haven't been to a million places. I don't know about other places that may have this existence and maybe with state schools, it does in some places, but you go anywhere in Onondaga County, you can't walk three people, past three people without seeing orange and S. There is such a, a, a relationship between the people who may never have been a student here. I mean, you don't fill the dome with 30,000 people for a basketball game without there being such community buy-in. Yeah, we call it like, uh, you know, Notre Dame would do this with, with the New York City alumni. They call them the subway alumni. And I think that's kind of what we have in Syracuse. There's no question. You're absolutely right. Like when that dome is, is, is you know, is stocked to the gills with 35,000 people for a game against Duke or whatever, yeah. You know, those aren't all alumni and they aren't all students there, although there's, you know, they do have great student representation and great alumni representation at sporting events and stuff. But it's, it's city people. And I think you even though you've never attended this university, you know, you feel that pride and you feel, you know, a part of it. And, you know, and I think the university feels a part of them yeah. as well. You know, so, yeah, I think without question, it's a huge part of the relationship that the university has built with the community and vice versa. I can think of a few people who are alumni of other schools, but grew up here and say, well, I grew up rooting for Syracuse. I still root for Syracuse, right? right? I mean, that oh, yeah. kind of outweighs whatever other and affiliations. Part of have. what we wanted to do with the book was to make sure that we created a book that not only worked for the alums, but worked for people who are friends of Syracuse University. Sure. And we wanted the book to be lively. And, and so it was not done as a university project. It was not done with bureaucracy. It was done by two people sitting, and we made ourselves sit outside the university and say, what would make this a really interesting book? What are the stories that anyone who picks this up goes, wow, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that about George Saunders, or I didn't know that about Lou Reed, or I didn't know that about, and then you fill in the blank, that anyone who sees this book on a coffee table could say, these guys have had some pretty interesting things go on up there, whether I went there or not. Yeah, yeah. Are there other people on... Scott told the story of that story, Musgrave. Other stories in particular that, that got your attention and, and really made you feel like this, this is a real Syracuse story? Well, the one I liked, and it was one that I worked on, but Scott worked on so many, was just doing a piece on the Jabberwocky, <laughs> right? The old, no longer existing um, music There's club. a certain generation of alumni who just said, whoa, wait, wait, hold yeah, on. I want to make sure I'm listening now. Yeah, and, and the Jabberwocky had the most amazing musical acts in there, and they didn't have to make money. Um, and it was small, crowded, dark, dank, stunk of beer. You know, it had Alice Carroll's um, kind of poetry and imagery on the walls. And I think that 
when you look at some of the artists that used to come and play kind of as an underground club on a university campus, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, those are the kinds of stories that, uh, you know, certainly resonate to a different time, a uh, different era, but, uh, but live on. And, and I think that's one of the real cool things. I think, you know, along those lines, like we, um, we really wanted to get in to these traditions or these places that, you know, immediately would resonate with alumni. And of course, you can't tell the story of Syracuse University without telling the story of Marshall Street, right. M Street. And one of the great things is we, we refer to it as the main street of Syracuse University, even though it's not on campus, right. technically, it's really not. But it resonates with so many people who went to bars, you know, in the M Street, I, I include the entire area, you know, I had slices of pizza at the uh, at the varsity or had the, what the honey, Cosmos, honey, Cosmos the, the honey, THB, of course. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, um, you know, so we really wanted people to feel like, you know, beyond, you know, the, the incredible academics and the architecture on campus and, and so forth. We wanted, you know, things that would really resonate with alumni, as Rick mentioned, the Jabberwocky and, and, and so we got, we got into the background, like how, how did it start? You know, the varsity, you, you've got essentially the, you know, the, the Della family, uh, you know, showing up as Greek immigrants and stuff and starting out with a food cart yeah. and then buying the house that becomes the varsity. And then like all these other things spring off of it. So there's stories like that that I just think, um, I think, you know, alumni, you, you, you go to the varsity and stuff like, wow, I didn't know that that's how it all started or whatever. And that, that's what we were trying to do. But there were also parts of the book that we wanted to make sure that every single alum could touch a moment in time. So we listed every con um, commencement speaker. Mm -hmm. We listed every concert that ever took place in the Dome. So if there had been a Jabberwocky, <laughs> the Stones and Springsteen and, and Billy Joel have played there and we gave them the dates so that you could point to possibly having seen a world-class concert, yep. right, on your campus. And a lot of people forget sometimes that the Archbold Stadium and the Carrier Dome, right in the middle, of campus and we're one of the few universities out there that actually have that kind of scale um, for our students to kind of fall out of bed i mean you can crawl out of sadler and, and reach you know and reach the dome you know it, it's interesting rick touches upon um another aspect we have an entire chapter devoted to famous visitors mm -hmm. because that's part of your college sure. experience too and whether it be your commencement speaker or whatever we broke down like all the presidents who appeared here and obviously you know here here Rick and I are Newhouse guys and new, you know, Newhouse one, and we go there and there's a plaque right yeah. out front there. And I'm sure like it's oblivious to most students now to walk through or whatever, but you know, that tells about the dedication of Newhouse one and Lyndon Baines Johnson being there. Mm -hmm. So I knew about that and so forth, but I really wanted to delve into it. So you do research and of course he delivers like, you know, one of his most historic and infamous speeches, the Gulf of Tonkin speeches is, is delivered there. Um, and this, of course, is about America's escalation in, into the Vietnam War. And it would be that's the demarcation point, the end, really, of the Johnson presidency. He doesn't run for reelection. And he had all these ideas of the great society. So there's history that's made here. And, and, and Rick talks about Archbold Stadium. And then and then we shoehorn right on the same site, the Carrier Dome. And it's ha hallowed grounds because John F. Kennedy is the commencement speaker there at Archbold Stadium. And think of all the great athletes. Jim Thorpe played there um, at Archbold. Babe Ruth played baseball games there and hit a titanic home run. 
Uh, we, yes, we did have a great baseball program for more than 100 <laughs> years, folks. Uh, Michael Jordan plays Pearl Washington there, and on and on and on. And that's one of the things I think when I come back and I walk and, and you go into buildings and stuff and like, you start thinking about who was here before me. Well, Dr. Martin Luther King really tries out two of his most famous speeches at Syracuse. Knowing that is one thing, but then we wanted to make sure we put photographs in the book that wouldn't normally be in a Syracuse University book. Mm -hmm. And because of the, the endorsement really that we got from the chancellor, uh, and from David Seaman, the head of the libraries, we were able to go out and purchase unbelievable archival photographs from Getty Images and Reuters and the Associated Press. So this book is full of things that you would normally not see in a Syracuse publication. So it's Dr. King on the mall in Washington, D.C. as a part of our storytelling about him giving the I Have a Dream speech at Syracuse, just off of the quad. Right, and then later he comes back uh, and, and gives another speech, and it's, I've been to the mountaintop. And of course, that's the speech he delivers the night before he's assassinated, right. you know? And so again, it's, you know, history happened here. And so you, you walk on this campus now and you wonder about like, you look in the faces of these kids who are scurrying about and, you know, <laughs> rushing to class and rushing yeah. to class, or, you know, this and that. And you just wonder like, who among these students are going to be part of the, you know, the, the bicentennial books? The 200th the book. The, we won't be around to write, unfortunately, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's all part of it. It, it. One of the things, you know, in, in putting something like this together is that balance of we want to share the history, and but you also don't want to make it this kind of sad tri tribute to things that are no longer here, right? I mean, you want to share the history, but also talk about the evolution. Archibald to the Carrier Dome to, I mean, and as we speak and record this today, this is the morning that the dome's roof was deflated so that we're, we're moving to the next generation of, of what that stadium will look like. Um, and you talk about Marshall Street, certainly Varsity is still there. Cosmos is not. Some of the places that you got pizza might not be there. Some of the bars, you know, the, there is evolution. And so as you as we think about that and we think about kind of where we're going, what what gathering what you've gathered um, can you kind of say about where we're heading? Well, Scott touched on it by saying the kids that are on campus today will become the famous alums of tomorrow and someone will recognize them. What we wanted to do was not just look at one decade or one era or one period, but to try and make it clear that it happens here all the time and it mm -hmm. will continue to happen. And I think that really in the economy that we're facing right now because of coronavirus, I think there are gonna be a lot of small schools that may really be threatened their existence, um, that they may not be able to survive a big economic downturn. I think Syracuse is one of those foundational American universities that is going to be here for a long, long time. And you'll feel it because of the excitement that will continue to come out of this place. And I think it has a history of innovation of, of not being, uh, it being appreciative of the past, but not being stuck in the past. Mm, yeah. I think that that's been another recurring theme that we, we found out here, you know, so that, so that Syracuse has been on the cutting edge of, of so many things, you know, wh whether it be, women's rights and civil rights and 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 uh, and then just scientific discoveries, you know, Robert Jarvik discovering, you know, the first artificial heart and and where, to, you know, how how that pushes things forward to, you know, professors here who played leading roles in, you know, in the 
uh, proving of, of Einstein theories and stuff of gravitational waves. And I think we're going to continue to see that um, because it is an innovative university. It's always like, you know, trying to anticipate, you know, what is going to happen and where should we be and, and, and how we teach and how we research and so forth changes constantly. Appreciate the past, but always innovate for the future right. and adapt, right? right? I mean, that's right. it's how, how we've gotten these first 150 years under our belts. Right. And the past is important because you have to know where you, you've come from to understand where you're going. Um, you know, so you can't dismiss the past. And I think, you know, you know, the chancellor has pointed out um, in, in, uh, in the preface to the book about how, you know, we haven't always gotten it right as a university, um, you know, the first time, but, you know, uh, you know, through trial and error or whatever, um, you know, we continue to try to move forward. And, and I think that's been part of the history, too. Like, you know, Rick mentioned about, you know, the uh, the Syracuse 8. Um, we didn't always get it right uh, regarding civil rights, um, you know, and, and things like that. But, you know, over time we did. We, you know, and I think that's the mark of it's it's an educational institution, you know, and. If you get an education, you're supposed to learn from certain things, and we do. And having enough voices in the room to, yeah. to have the perspectives that are necessary for that learning. Yeah. And we had, you know, I mean, you know, th there's been issues with student protests and so forth. This is not unprecedented. Again, you know, learning from history and what's happened. I mean, this university was shut down during, you know, after the Kent State shootings, as many American universities were, and the entire semester was was canceled uh, after that happened. Uh, you know, there were protests early on uh, regarding the lack of a gymnasium where students actually burnt down a shack that was being used behind the Hall of Languages uh, to get their message across. So, so there's been conflict and that's part of history too, that, you know, not everything is smooth and comfortable or whatever, but it's how you react to things, I think, in the long run and you, you do try to get it right. Well, and we used as a theme, and I know we're probably out of time, but probably one of the most famous pieces of art that's here on campus is the mosaic of the Sacco and Vanzetti trial. And Scott, and it was really his idea when we sat down to try and create this mosaic, said, we've got to make sure we've got all the pieces. So we have photographs in there of protests on the quad and graffiti written on the side of the Hall of Languages that says, shut it down. And that's a part of this mosaic, which we think is, makes this university so spectacular. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. The book uh, is, is tremendous. It's a tremendous capturing of 150 years, and we'll look forward to the next 150. Well, and let us just thank uh, Chancellor Kent Severud for his support in, in allowing this book to be written the way it was. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And David Seaman, you know, from, from Syracuse Libraries that, that just did... Uh, a he was tremendously supportive and enabled us to get, you know, all those incredible images, many of which have never been published before in, in a book about Syracuse. Thank you, guys. Thanks. If you're interested in purchasing Forever Orange, the story of Syracuse University, it's available through the university bookstore on Amazon and a number of other booksellers. There's a link in the description of this podcast. Syracuse University had planned a number of programs and events both on and off campus to honor the university's 150 years of impact. Like everything else in these unprecedented times, those events have been canceled or postponed. But this is a significant milestone in the university's history, and it deserves to be recognized. We invite you to engage with the university and alumni social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay connected. My thanks again to Scott Petoniak and Rick Burton, 
and thank you for listening. If this is your first time, check out the archive of past episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a future episode. Until next time, I'm Chris Velarde. Stay connected, stay safe, and stay well, Orange family. <laughs>